of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is the word of the Lord. Now, at our Q&A after the service, I'll be sweating buckets because I will be responding to questions about how we relate to government. That's what happens when you preach about submission to government. You you get a lot of questions. In fact, I have at least five questions that I need to answer uh, already. But that's fine. Because despite our differences of opinion at this church, we have remained pretty much united. And I'm thankful to the Lord for that because that is a testament to God's transforming grace at work in and among us. But here's the challenge. We need to keep growing in that unity. After all, if you notice, 
Paul's appeal in chapter 1, verse 10, is that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. That's a really high standard, isn't it? Now, let's take a step back and realize that Paul is not saying that we have to have the same opinions right down the line up to how you kneel or how you receive communion. You know, some people, last week when, I, when we were giving communion, some people would have one hand laid outstretched. Some people would have two hands outstretched. Look, we don't have to have the same way of receiving bread. We don't even have to agree on how we relate to government. Paul is not saying that we have some kind of groupthink. Rather, Paul wants the Corinthians, according to um, Siampa and Rosner, Paul wants the, Christ, the Corinthians to adopt the Christian attitude or way of thinking. He also wants them to be perfectly united in thought, which here refers not so much to cognitive uniformity, that is to say we all think the same opinions, but a voluntary willingness to act for the good of everyone. See, that's the goal, that we all care for each other so that we will act for the better or the best interests of the other person. Paul is calling us to a unity in diversity that keeps the gospel central. We may disagree on issues, but we commit ourselves to working together and loving one another because we recognize that we are family. That's why Paul begins in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. He's bringing them to the fundamental reality that we are bound together by the cross of Jesus Christ. And that reality transcends our differences. And he is pointing out in this passage that the message of the cross needs to shape the way we think of ourselves and the way we relate to others, the way we think of others and relate to them. The gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be the lens through which we evaluate the church. And as we evaluate the church through the lens of the cross, then it must define our goals and objectives as a congregation. Or another way of saying is, it is that we need to develop a cruciform culture, a church culture, a way of relating to one another, an atmosphere that is shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why we're studying 1 Corinthians. We want to be God's church in Guelph whose loving unity in Christ shines as a light in a fractured society. Now, unfortunately, that is what the church of Corinth was not. According to verse um, 12, and 13, they were being fragmented by competing allegiances instead of being united around the gospel. And so in verse 13, Paul points them back to the gospel with three rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided 
was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Come on. He is orienting them to Christ who died for them and who alone deserves their exclusive allegiance. And he reminds them that in the first place, his ministry was focused on proclaiming the gospel, not on baptism. That's why he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's not that baptism is irrelevant. It is the person who baptizes that is irrelevant. After all, baptism proclaims that you belong to Jesus, not to the guy who baptized you. We are simply the means. So what was the problem? Well, the underlying problem was that the Corinthian believers believed or were trying to establish their status and identity by aligning themselves with a particular leader. It's nothing new. We, we try to establish our identity by being Jays fans or Leafs fans or Habs fans. That's our identity. And Stephen Am writes, despite Paul's teaching regarding security of identity in Christ, do we have that? Yeah. The Corinthians were trying to find their identity in union with another patron. This was the issue of horizontal factionalism, patronage for self-validation. Patronage is our escapist fix to numb the suspicion and fear that there is something wrong with the world and that it might be us. We are looking to be part of something bigger than ourselves, but we attach ourselves to things that cannot hold the weight and that ultimately crumble creating walls between us and those who have attached themselves to other things. Don't miss this. This is the reason we latch on to causes. They become our surrogate savior. We become fierce evangelists for political parties, diets, methods of parenting and education, etc. These things give us a sense of identity and purpose. In so far as they make us different than or distinct from other people. Our patron-based identities necessarily build walls that destroy the shalom that we are seeking. And I think we all understand that we face that very temptation every day. And that temptation to find our identity and our worth in something other than Jesus is rooted in a, an even deeper reality, in our failure to live out the fact that we are not our own, but belong body and soul to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. What I mean is that we may believe in Jesus. We are trusting in Jesus, but we still live according to our culture's narrative that we are autonomous. We embrace our world's understanding of freedom as the ability to do as we please. And so our theme song is that song from the First Wives Club, You Don't Own Me. I'm not going to sing that. <laughs> you don't own me. Don't tell me what to do. Just let me be myself. Alan Noble 
describes our societal framework this way. If I belong to myself, then I am the only one who can set limits on who I am or what I can do. No one else has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life, or to assure that I am okay. I belong to myself. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's something ingrained in us from birth. Children basically say in their action, through their actions, you're not the boss of me. And it doesn't change. Even adults act that way, don't they? And we accept it as normal. But here's the problem, according to Alan Noble. But the freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. Once I am liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. With no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. This burden manifests as a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and expression. But because everyone else is working frantically to craft and express their own identity, society becomes a space of vicious competition between individuals vying for attention, meaning, and significance. Not unlike the contrived drama of reality TV. And we see that all over, don't we? We call it other terms, like keeping up with the Joneses. We stress over our Facebook profile, over how many people like our status update, or if anybody even pays attention to our Twitter feed. In this case, the Corinthian church was being fractured by that competitiveness. And so Paul points them back to the message of the cross. And it is the true story that describes humanity and defines our destiny. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It defines our destiny because those who be reject it are those who are perishing. Those who are embrace it are those who are being saved. But despite its significance, the message of the cross, according to Paul, is foolish in man's eyes. See, weakness and sacrifice do not appeal to us. We like it in others, but not for ourselves. And we gravitate towards success and victory. And yet Paul's point in verse 19 to verse 21 is that the cross of Jesus Christ is God's deliberate strategy to expose and frustrate human pride and autonomy. Hear what he says. For it is written, and this is God speaking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate then verse, and then where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? In our day, we would say, who's the social media influencer? Who's the religious guru? Who's the scientist? 
and um, technologist. Who's the philosopher? These are the arbiters of today's societal values. God reveals their folly through the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. It is very offensive. And people look at the cross and they call it cosmic child abuse. An impractical waste. That's nothing new. The cross is offensive to all men. Paul, in verse 22, talks about Jews demanding signs. But Jesus performed signs. In fact, John is organized around seven signs. Well, here's the problem with the attitude underlying the demand for signs. D.A. Carson points out that there is a kind of longing for a display of Jesus' power that is entirely godly, submissive, and perhaps even desperate. There is another kind that puts the person making the request into the driver's seat. Some want to see Jesus perform a sign so that they can evaluate him, assess his claims, test his credentials. And that was what was happening with the Pharisees, right? And as long as people are assessing him, they are in the superior position, the position of judge. And here's the problem. We dare to judge Jesus who is Lord and judge. And his demand of us is that we put our trust and we submit to a crucified Savior. The cross was a stumbling block to the Jews because they thought that the Messiah would come, sit on the throne of David, kick out the Romans, and make Israel great again. To them then, a crucified Messiah was scandalous nonsense. It meant yet another victory for those hated Romans who had designed the cross to demonstrate their dominance by degrading everyone whom they crucified. And yet you want me to bow to a crucified Messiah? No way. Now the Greeks demanded wisdom. And this is not wisdom in the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, wisdom literature sense of the fear of the Lord. The Greeks, according to Don Carson, thought of wisdom as a public philosophy, a well-articulated worldview that made sense of life and ordered the choices, values, and priorities of those who adopted it. So think Epicureanism or Stoicism. Or if you've watched The Good Place, think of Nietzsche and his system or Ayn Rand and her system. We're talking about an organizing system, a coherent worldview, which conveys a sense of power. Because if you can explain life, then you remain in control of it. And here's the problem. The cross meant weakness and a loss of control. 
which was the exact opposite of what they were seeking. Now, let's note that Paul is not, may I repeat, not justifying anti-intellectualism. He's not saying, just believe. Christianity is not a leap of faith. Faith is rational, but there's something more to it. Christianity is a beautiful, logically coherent worldview whose comprehensive account of reality enables true human flourishing. But it is more than a rationally compelling, intellectually satisfying philosophy. See, to be a genuine Christian is to be brought into a transformative faith union with Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God incarnate, who humbled himself to lay down his life on the cross of Calvary so that he may rise again on the third day. And that is the reality that we just portrayed through the symbolism of baptism. Christianity is not just a system of belief. Through faith, we are united with the preeminent person of the universe. And it's not something we understand by mere human rationality. Paul's point is that God designed the cross to overthrow human expectations. The pathetic spectacle of Jesus' death seemed like a tragic defeat. But Paul says in verse 24, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. We've got to see it from within. See, only the cross addresses the root cause of our predicament, our sin. No amount of technological development, philosophical and ethical reflection, social engineering, or educational strategy can change the sinful heart of man. Neither can our best efforts remove our guilt and condemnation before God. We don't like it, but the reality is that we need a Savior. And that is why the second person of the triune God became a fully human being and laid down his life for us. And the irony of the cross is that in the weakness of the cross, when man rejected God and did to the Son of God all they wished, God accomplished the salvation we desperately need. Because there on the cross, Jesus died as our sacrifice and substitute, paying for our sins, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve so that God's wrath is fully appeased. His death. And what could be weaker than death? fully satisfies the competing demands of God's wrath 
and mercy. So that by his death, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is a solution beyond the human ability to imagine. No human being could imagine a God who stoops to conquer. And therein lies the wisdom of God. A folly that is stronger than, wiser than human wisdom and a weakness that is stronger than human strength. So that Paul, jump with me to verse 30, would say that Christ is our wisdom. And what he means is that God, Christ is God's effective action, God's effective wisdom. And he unpacks it in three facets of salvation, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Because united with Christ through faith, he is our righteousness. When God looks at us, he sees the face of Jesus who pleased him in every way. The righteousness of Christ is credited to us. And Christ is our holiness. In Christ, we belong to God, set apart for his purposes. Our rebellion has been removed because he is our redemption. United with Christ, our sins are forgiven and we have been delivered from slavery to sin. We have been raised with Christ into the life of the new creation so that we have new hearts on which God's law is written and the spirit of God dwells in us so that we are no longer rebels. That's the wonder of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. But sadly, the Corinthian believers were turning away from the cross of Christ in their pursuit of status. And in pursuing status by being patron or by patronage through leaders, they were negating their own status. They were embracing the very standards that stripped them of their worth, that left them empty and insecure. And I think we know that. We get caught up in trying to advance our career so that we could compete with our siblings and measure up to daddy and mommy's expectation. Or in school, we get caught up trying to compete and trying to fit in with the in-crowd. That's never, never a stable, secu stable identity, is it? It's always, what have you done for me lately? And so Paul points the Corinthians back to Christ, points you and me back to Christ, who is the source of our true identity and worth. That's why Paul, in verse 26, reminds the Corinthians that they were nobodies. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. It is not to say nobody was of noble birth, but predominantly. It, Christianity reached all levels of society. 
And it wasn't that God was choosing according to your credentials. Verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the, the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Kind of hurts, doesn't it? God is destroying human pride by saving the dregs of the world, you and me. And God's choice both humbles and affirms us. Because it tells us, first of all, that you're a believer almost despite who you are. We didn't bring anything to the table except our sinfulness. Whoever you are in the world, whatever your credentials are, they are irrelevant. They don't make you more acceptable to God. But that's also tremendously affirming. Because as people belonging to God, God, we are accepted because God chose to love us unconditionally. Despite what we bring and don't bring to the table. You see, the fact is, you and I, if we were starting a movement that would last for 2,000 years, we wouldn't choose you and me as the people who would represent a majestic God. And yet, the wonder of it is that God actually chose us for himself. And he's never going to stop loving us. And he's never going to give up on you and me, no matter how much we mess up. He's not giving up on these stinking Corinthian believers. That's amazing. I mean, we're so conditioned in our workplaces. Three strikes, you're out, right? How many times do I have to tell you? Well, you know, think of how we are as believers. How many times do I have to tell you? I know, I know. <laughs> over and over. But God doesn't give up on us. Because it is an act of sovereign grace designed to turn the world's values upside down. God's goal in choosing you and me is to subvert the system of the world. And the cross judges all human boasting and pretensions to glory so that, as verse 31 would say, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We glory in Christ and Christ alone. And that is why Paul reminds them in chapter 2, verse 1, that he did not preach the gospel with human wisdom and eloquence. Instead, according to verse 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul preached badly. Paul was actually a good speaker. 
neither was Paul a, intimidated by Corinthian society. What Paul is saying is that he did not preach the way the Greeks and the other Corinthians expected him to preach. During that time, the Greeks prized pompous, inflated speech that tickled the ears and sought the approval of the audience. It's about cleverness. It's about your command of the language. And Paul was not interested in people's likes and shares. He was calling people to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he was conscious of the tremendous gravity of bearing witness to God. Mindful that his best rhetorical efforts could not change a human heart. And so he was absolutely dependent on God alone. That's what he means. He was calling people to the cross of Christ, and he reflected the weakness of the cross in his preaching. Because the preaching of the cross, the message of the cross, is offensive to human pride. It demands submission to a crucified king. It is something that only the Holy Spirit can bring about by his powerful work. That's what he means when he says in verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He proclaimed the gospel, relying on the Spirit to open men's hearts, to cause the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to shine in their hearts. And that's the same challenge we face today, friends. We proclaim a crucified Savior who undermines and overturns our pride and our self-sufficiency. We are, it, it doesn't mean we can be lazy. We are responsible to communicate the gospel to the best of the ability God has given us. But there is this knowledge, this consciousness at the back of our minds, a consciousness I have right now as I speak, that my best efforts are futile unless the Spirit of God enables saving faith, unless the Spirit of God drives His truth into our hearts, no amount of rhetoric, no amount of illustrations, no amount of emotional manipulation will change people's hearts. Saving faith is something only God could produce. And so we humbly rely on him, knowing that our weakness and inadequacy are the very means by which Christ glorifies himself. And so as the people who are the objects of the self-giving humility and love of Christ, we need to be clinging to the cross and be shaped by its message. 
See, too often, we get caught up in seeking power and influence, wanting to get noticed, instead of embracing the weakness and insignificance of the cross. But the cross is meant to humble us by revealing our brokenness and driving us to utter dependence on the power of God. And as heralds of the gospel, we need to reflect the ethos of the gospel. So we need to be a church characterized by the self-giving humility of Jesus. After all, we belong to him. And being united with him gives us our worth and significance. And my prayer is that the message of the cross would be the lens through which we would understand all of life. And that the cross of Christ would transform our desires. That way, those who come into our midst would be confronted with the awesome beauty and wonder of Christ crucified. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the cross. And we ask that you would forgive us for so often we who we who are saved through the cross of Jesus Christ act as if we were saved by our own efforts, by our own intelligence. In fact, we conduct ourselves as if our future and our worth were dependent on us. Father, forgive us for our forgetfulness. Forgive us for forgetting that we are not our own, but belong body and soul to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that we need to live as those who are gripped by your love. And we thank you for the security that that provides, that because we belong to you, you have taken it upon ourselves to care for us, to assure our future. And indeed, we thank you that you have guaranteed our future. For Christ died and rose again so that we would be adopted as sons and joint heirs with Christ. So Father, we pray, let this identity be that which shapes the way we conduct ourselves in this world. And may we we be so delighted in Christ that we would not be able to keep ourselves silent, but that we would speak of him who is our joy and delight. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.